This episode is brought to you by the Arizona Department of Health Services. Go to adhs.gov or to learn more about substance use disorder, check out azhealth.gov slash hopeheals. RX Security has over 30 years experience printing tamper-resistant prescription pads and EHR paper that is Medicaid and state compliant. To prescribe safely, visit rxsecurity.com. That's rxsecurity.com. Hello, this is Dr. Ann Maiden. I'm a board-certified pediatrician that has been practicing for almost 10 years. I have worked at a federally qualified health center and more recently through different telemedicine platforms. I'm also the Vice Chair of Pediatrics at Midwestern University's Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine, and I'd like to welcome you to the Arizona Physician Podcast. Take care and enjoy. Our best advice to individuals is try to have a very consistent sleep-wake schedule on a daily basis as, as best you can, right? If you can't, then you know it is opening yourself up to increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, uh, depression. So. Welcome to the Arizona Physician Podcast. My name is Edward Araujo, Managing Editor of the Arizona Physician Magazine, and your host for this episode. Today, our discussion will be sleep medicine. Dr. Ruchir Patel, MD, FACP, is our guest. Dr. Patel founded the Insomnia and Sleep Institute of Arizona and is their medical director. Dr. Patel graduated from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, which he then followed with a residency in internal medicine at Detroit's Henry Ford Hospital. He then pursued a formal uh, fellowship training in sleep disorder medicine at Chicago's Rush University Medical Center. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Patel. Thank you, and, and thank you to the uh, Maricopa County Medical Society for uh, inviting me to speak on this podcast. I'm uh, very happy to be here. Thank you. We appreciate that. Dr. Patel, uh, can you please describe the training that's required to practice sleep medicine? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So for me personally, I did internal medicine initially, as you mentioned earlier, uh, and then I did a fellowship in sleep medicine. Prior to 2011, it wasn't actually required to do an actual fellowship in sleep medicine. Um, it was there were the methodology by which one could get enough CME credit hours, uh, read a certain number of sleep studies, and then kind of get checked off by a board certified sleep physician to go take the sleep boards. Mm-hmm. Um, as of 2011, when the field became an official subspecialty of internal medicine it became mandatory that you must complete a fellowship program in sleep medicine before you're eligible to take the sleep medicine boards. So now you can actually go into sleep medicine from internal medicine, family practice, ENT, anesthesia, pulmonary critical care, neurology, pediatrics. So there's multiple different pathways that you can go into the fellowship, you know, from your, your uh, based residency training. So it's not strictly just internal medicine, but I personally did internal medicine and then sleep medicine. So some of our listeners, you know, uh, they may be familiar with the, the circadian rhythm and the sleep cycle, sleep-wake cycle, excuse me. Uh, could you describe why it's so important for the human body? Absolutely. Well, the circadian rhythm is basically our internal clock, right? I mean, that's what people describe the circadian rhythm to be in terms of just simplistic terms. But the circadian rhythm really, it defines how each and every cell in our body and every organ functions, right? So imagine our body being a huge factory uh, that's operating 24 hours a day. The circadian rhythm, not only does it determine what time we're genetically programmed to go to sleep and what time we're genetically programmed to wake up, 
but also the circadian rhythm defines when the heart will do certain things, when the liver will do certain things, when the brain will do certain things, when certain hormones are released. Um, and even in terms of when the GI system will, will function and when it won't function. So it, it really controls when each and every organ will do certain things, right? So it's important to note that the circadian rhythm is very, it's very defined in the sense that each and every cell in the body follows its own clock in terms of when it needs to do certain things. So in essence, the best analogy would be that a person has to show up to the factory at X time to start their shift. And if they're delayed in getting in, obviously they're not going to get paid for the time that they weren't there. So imagine a, a cell, for instance, a body cell has to start its function at set specific time. And if it misses the window to be able to do that, then for that 24 hour period, it won't do that specific function, right? So in essence, if the circadian rhythm is off, then certain processes in the body and hormone secretions and regulation won't occur as efficiently that specific day. And if it, if there's a cumulative effect of the circadian rhythm not being you know, managed correctly, then it results and opens up the window for damage uh, and you know, disease development and all. Okay. So, you know, uh, my smartphone allows me to get or set a sleep goal it reminds me when to start winding down at night and slowly wakes me up in the morning. You know, I guess I'll ask what I, I assume most patients ask you. How much sleep should the average American get every day? I can say, generally speaking, a lot more than we are overall as a population. Um, but no, but in, in, in all seriousness, the average rule of thumb for how much sleep we should be getting for adults is about seven to eight hours. Um, there is evidence in literature going back as far as, you know, 10, 12 years ago, showing that averaging less than six hours of sleep per night, an individual can be three to four times more likely to develop angina, heart attack, or even stroke. Um, getting more sleep than eight hours. Also, there's evidence showing that um, getting greater than eight hours of sleep per night uh, may increase the risk of those three by about one and a half times. Um, so too much sleep is not good. Definitely too little sleep you know, obviously is far worse. In the more recent years, there's obviously a lot more um, you know, relationship with sleep health and brain health. And there's a lot more data indicating that uh, chronic sleep deprivation can increase the risk of cognitive dysfunction, i.e. dementia, but even increased risk of Alzheimer's disease as well. And it all kind of stems from uh, a paper that was published in 2013 showing that all of our brains actually contain a, a version of a lymphatic system or a sewer system that they call the glymphatic system, which operates during sleep, which helps to clean, cleanse the brain's ability to um, or get out toxins, so to speak, that the brain produces by functioning during the day. So if, if the person's not getting enough sleep, you're depriving yourself of the ability to brain to clean itself or cleanse itself. And that in turn results in those toxins building up. And that's one of the mechanisms by which it's felt that we can be at increased risk of Alzheimer's. So, so in a sense, we're, it's a fine line between sleeping too, too little or sleeping too much. Yeah, I mean, in my my initial statement with regards to, you know, more sleep than we're currently getting as a population, I mean, the, the larger issue in general across the world is that we're not getting enough sleep, right? We're all guilty of sacrificing sleep in effort to do something else, right? Stay up late to work or stay up late to catch up on, you know, the series on Netflix. Uh, we kind of sacrifice sleep and we'll compensate the next day with caffeine. But that is, a, you know, you're constantly getting cumulative uh, you know, sleep debt, and that results in a much larger issue long-term, you know, which we don't realize because we don't feel it, right? It's like individuals that have high blood pressure, they don't feel anything, but their, you know, doctor says, hey, you got to take anti 
antihypertensive medication and they do it, but they're like, well, I don't feel anything, you know, kind of the same thing here too. You don't really feel anything, but it results in long-term damage, which is obviously the major issue and concern for us. Well, thank you. Um, after the break, we'll discuss um, Dr. Patel's practice, the Insomnia and Sleep Institute of Arizona. Thank you for listening to this episode. Substance use disorder is a real and growing disease that particularly affects pregnant and postpartum women. The stigma surrounding SUD is a major reason why many women are afraid to come forward to ask for help. Words matter. Our language matters. Treating those with substance use disorder with compassion has an immense impact on women and their families. Let's all be part of the solution together. To learn more, please visit azhealth.gov slash hopeheals today. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Arizona Physician Podcast. We are joined by Rashir Patel of the Insomnia and Sleep Institute of Arizona. Dr. Patel, physicians often work uh, long days and then care for their children or pets. You know, sleep may be an afterthought. If your fellow physicians only get four hours of sleep one day, then they he or she catch up by, you know, sleeping longer over the weekend. Do you think uh, they can bank those hours of rest? Well, obviously, this is a very common problem for not only physicians, but, you know, many individuals in the professional workforce. But I mean, the short answer is, you can make up for lost sleep debt. Will you ever bank or make up for all the sleep that you have lost through sleep deprivation? You won't, and it's not possible, right? Um, there's a, there's a well-known phenomenon that's been described in the literature over the last couple of years called social jet lag, which I believe we're all kind of guilty of it. And what social jet lag is, is that on the weekdays, for instance, you know, we go to bed at a X time and wake up at X time to be able to be compatible with going to work. And then on the weekends, when you don't have to go to work, like, hey, you know what, I'll stay up late, I can watch a movie, and then I'll sleep in. So the difference between the time that you go to bed on the weekdays versus going to bed on the weekends, if it's a one hour or two hour difference, that phenomenon is what we call social jet lag. Um, so in essence, in terms of us physicians that stay up late to spend time with the families, and then on the weekends, we try to you know catch up, that's also social jet lag right there as well on top of sleep deprivation. So this difference in that one hour, two hour change actually can result in significant disruption to the circadian rhythm, right? So there's increased evidence showing that even a one hour change in the social jet lag phenomenon can increase the risk of developing heart disease by 11% just by only changing what time you go to bed on the weekdays versus weekends just by one hour, right? If you go to bed at nine on the weekdays and go to bed at 10 on the weekends, that one hour difference increases a person's risk of heart disease by 11%. But that kind of goes back to the earlier question about circadian rhythms and what's involved uh, in terms of what does it do in the body? and that's the whole point I was making earlier. And that if, if a, if a specific organ or our cell in the body can't do what it was meant to do between 9 PM and 10 PM, when you're sleeping on the weekdays, well, on the weekends, if you go to bed at 10, well, that function is lost for that day. Right? So when this happens over and over and over again, it obviously results in damage and inability of the, the cells to repair the specific organ, mm-hmm. but the social jet lag also increases risk of weight gain, obesity, which can increase the risk of developing type two diabetes. There's about a, you know, a 30% increased risk of developing depression just because of this, you know, timing change. So I mean, a long answer to your question is that, can we bank hours of rest? We can't completely. Um, can we make up for what we get, what we don't get rather, sorry, we can't completely. 
do we advise that if you can sleep in to at least make up for what you're not getting as much as possible? Absolutely. But our best advice to individuals is try to have a very consistent sleep-wake schedule on a daily basis as, as best you can, right? If you can't, then, you know, it is opening yourself up to increased risk of heart disease, diabetes, uh, depression, so. You know, you've grown the Insomnia and Sleep Institute of Arizona since, uh, you know, you founded the practice in 2013. What is the difference between your team's approach to patient care and a standalone sleep testing facility? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, our core difference really is, um, is the way we're trained, right? So first off, when I started the practice back in 2013, I was one of the only few actual fellowship trained sleep medicine physicians in Arizona that actually was only doing full-time sleep medicine. I mean, we were, and we still are to some degree a novelty because there aren't many fellowship spots available. There's about 160 to 170 fellowship spots in the entire US. So there aren't many of us produced first off. The way we're trained is very unique compared to a lot of the sleep positions that were grandfathered in through you know, the mechanism I had mentioned earlier. But one of the core differences in our practice, which I feel has you know, helped us to be successful is that our focus is the patient itself, right? Not testing. Um, you know, the unfortunate reality is that sleep medicine as a field began primarily with just doing sleep studies and testing facilities. And that's kind of what was prevalent for many years. Mm-hmm. The way I was trained at Rush was we always evaluated the patient first. It didn't matter what the complaint was, whether it was snoring, or whether it was excessive tiredness or insomnia, we always met with the patient first and did a full comprehensive sleep history, you know, looked at their medical history as well to kind of get a good complete picture of what exactly is going on. And to be able to figure out why is this person not sleeping well? And if testing is involved and we do the test, then we see the patient back and review the results. So really the goal is chronic care management, right? So what we've done and what I've done from day one is that we really don't accept any patients straight into the lab just for testing. I don't believe in it because when I'm reading a sleep study, if I don't know the patient's full sleep history, it's really hard for me to really identify exactly what the root issues are, right? For me, when I read a sleep study for a patient, I factor in what I was told when I met with the patient that, hey, I wake up consistently at two o'clock in the morning. I don't know why. So when I'm reading the sleep study, I'm looking at two, I'm looking at the clock for the study. Okay, at two o'clock, what exactly happened? Boom. All right, great. Then I can go back to the patient and tell them that, hey, this is what I observed that's actually occurring at two o'clock in the morning that's actually waking up. So I can put it in context for the patient. But the other core difference too is that, for instance, for our sleep apnea patients, right, which is the most common uh, sleep disorder we deal with, if we diagnose a patient with sleep apnea today, if we initiate them on CPAP therapy, for instance, we will always see the patient back in clinic for a follow-up visit exactly four to six weeks later. And the reason for that is that there's numerous compliance studies that have shown that the first four to six weeks is the most crucial period for a new CPAP user to demonstrate you know, a long-term adherence. So we want to see the patient back within 30 to 45 days so we can see how are you doing review the data from the download report from the CPAP machine. If there's issues with troubleshooting the mask and things like that, we wanna intervene sooner rather than later so we can help the patient and get them compliant and make sure that they're actually noticing symptomatic improvement. And, and that's resulted in great outcomes for us because you know our compliance rates in our practice over the last eight and a half years with CPAP users has been over 90% and the national average is only about 50 to 52%. And it's not that we have a magic sauce. It's just that we're following these patients very closely within the first, you know, one to six months. Mm-hmm. And to some degree, we're having to hold their hands. And I personally use CPAP myself. You know, I've been on it for seven and a half years. So I totally understand how much of a challenge it can be, but it requires a lot of effort and 
you know, patience on our part, but patience for the patient, him or herself as well. Uh, but then we follow these patients long-term. That's the, that's the core difference between us is that our focus is actually making sure the patient is properly evaluated, diagnosed, and that they're properly treated long-term. Dr. Patel, let's uh, finish with some guidance for uh, other physicians. Uh, what are some red flags they should look for when, uh, that may indicate a patient is having sleep problems and should speak with a specialist like yourself? Absolutely. I mean, we can kind of go through, um, you know, some just overall some of the broad sleep disorder categories. I mean, snoring is a big one, right? Mm -hmm. It was published about six years ago that um, anyone that snores, he or she is at high risk for having sleep apnea. That's enough to warrant a patient being ruled out for sleep apnea, regardless of their age, gender, body type, or even ethnicity. If a person reports snoring to any degree, they should be referred for evaluation for sleep apnea because snoring is just an indicator that there's increased soft tissue in the throat that's vibrating basically, but that, you know, definitely places this individual at high risk for having sleep apnea. Same principle in children as well. So we're trained in pediatric sleep medicine. I'd say about 15% of my patient population is pediatrics. Children shouldn't snore at all. And that's an age category that is actually very much missed from a sleep medicine perspective. So children definitely shouldn't snore. Teeth grinding in children is a negative indicator that that's a high, that's a very common symptom of underlying pediatric sleep apnea. But then other symptoms in adults would be, you know, insomnia, being reliant upon over-the-counter sleep aids or prescription sleep aids. Individuals are complaining just constantly being tired all the time, no matter how much they're sleeping. Mm -hmm. Shift workers, that's a big population that is at high risk for all sorts of circadian rhythm issues. And obviously the, the different disease states that I mentioned that can occur if the circadian rhythm is, is misaligned. Um, those individuals definitely need to be evaluated so we can kind of help them to make sure that they're able to sleep You know, when they're coming home from work in the morning and making sure they're able to stay awake at night. Um, but those are going to be the most common ones, you know, snoring, tiredness, uh, insomnia, um, problems uh, staying awake during the daytime. I mean, those are the common red flags. And then in children, of course, like I mentioned, snoring, restless sleep, um, teeth grinding uh, in children. So those are very common things that we'll see come into our into our practice. I want to thank uh, Dr. Rashir Patel for joining us on this episode of the podcast. Uh, if you're interested in learning more about sleep medicine, uh, please visit Dr. Patel's uh, practice website, www.sleeplessinarizona.com or call his practice at 480-745-3547. Uh, we also want to thank our episode sponsors, RX Security and Micah. And finally, thank you for joining us and Hope you press that subscribe button on whichever platform you enjoy listening to the podcast. Founded in 1892, Maricopa County Medical Society is a strong, collective physician voice. Thank you for listening to the Arizona Physician Podcast.